Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. And as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how goeth it? It goeth good. I'm pretty sure Tim is right now doing a one-man show somewhere and not telling us. (laughs) Yeah, Tim, where are you? A one-man show? What do you mean? Because you're in this auditorium all by yourself and you're (laughs) one-man showing it. I am um, in Mead, Colorado. I have about two days left of driving on my trip. And just to kind of refresh our uh, listeners' memories, the last time I was in Mead, I was staying with my friends, and one of their um, oh, one yes. of their kids is one of my students online, <laughs> and we daydreamed up another fresh, provocative. <sighs> prank to play play in our class and we just did it about an hour and a half ago how'd, how'd it go it was not as successful as as the last one was see you've but lost I still their think trust it's, now that it, one of them said exactly that he said the trust has been broken it's true that's a sacred relationship student teacher and you messed with that and i kind of pranked it okay this time i, I <laughs> this is why socrates was poisoned you know exactly this kind of stuff just, let's do a little bit of like Greek history. <laughs> I don't think that's why he was poisoned. Okay, we both know I always go for the melodramatic metaphorical reading of things, and that is just in my soul. I feel like that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so much for the text. Tim, you have 45 seconds to explain Ooh, your trip. Your, uh, your trick. I had a guest speaker, Dr. Elliot Grasso, one of my former colleagues at Gutenberg, was on talking about what yeah. the Greeks thought music does to us. You know, like, does it overpower us and make us tap our toes? So he, I kind of planted a little seed before he got on. I said, Elliot, say that you had heard that there had been fracking earthquakes near Mead, Mead Colorado. Oh gosh. And so he gets on, you know, all the students are on. He's like, hey, I heard there was like fracking earthquakes near there and 
I was like, what? Impossible. <laughs> okay, so meanwhile, Sophia is downstairs, you know, in like her living room. I'm in their little guest cottage. Two of Sophia's brothers and sisters sneak up without anybody in class seeing it. About 30 minutes into it, we had this preset cue. Sophia was going to say ontology, and that was going to be the signal that a fracking earthquake had erupted in so, need. And so, so did you have to script her use of the word ontology, or does she just normally use that in everyday conversation? No, we had talked about it in the previous. It kind of became this funny thing that we were talking about ontology in a previous class. And everyone was like, what is ontology? It's so hard to understand. <laughs> one of my students said, can we solve the ontology of sin? It's throwing me into an existential <laughs> dilemma and I've got to do my math homework. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're like, yes, Good luck with that, that right now. Good luck Good with luck that, right. So at the appointed time when the Q word ontology was used, one of Sophia's sisters, like, without being seen on camera, starts shaking my computer. Sophia's dad starts shaking her computer. One of her brothers dumps a huge vat of Legos on the ground. It sounds like glass is breaking. I fall over, my computer falls over. And all of the students, they all are like, this is a crock. <laughs> this isn't really happening. They didn't buy it for like they're, they're Googling five like seconds. Mead, Oregon. Exactly. Like Fracking earthquake. Yeah. Right. Nobody bought it. <laughs> Nobody bought it. It was so disappointing. You destroyed their trust. Just or, like Socrates. I know. Did you also tell them there was no Santa Claus? Did yeah. You just went for it, didn't you? <laughs> Is it, is it possible that you maybe just didn't, it wasn't a good performance by you? Ooh. That's the bottom line is it was not a good performance. I just wasn't centered. I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't, they, you have to what, stop talking. They, they didn't believe in you. They didn't believe in the They didn't believe in me. It was not a plausible yeah, performance. I just feel like you have not yet embodied the character of Tim McIntosh. That I agree. Yeah. Well, Someone's going to have to coach you through this. you got to get in yeah. touch with who really is Tim McIntosh, and then it is going to be more believable to your students. Absolutely. I agree. I, I could probably help you with that for a small fee. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of um, not believable performances, we are here to talk about Twelfth Night. No, no, we're not. We're here to say happy birthday, David Kern. Oh. Thank you. Happy birthday, David Kern. Thank you. And this is how lame me and Tim are. We discussed what cool thing we could do for your birthday before the show and came up with nothing. <laughs> now I know why. Tim's creative juices were somewhere else. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's they were totally... My creative juices were lost in the fracking earthquake. <laughs> it's not His because mind I has been my, rattled. It's not because I have such good taste or like <laughs> I'm difficult to you know, impress or something like that. Yes, all of that too. And not right. that we're just lame, lame, not creative people <laughs> at all. Well, <laughs> we're saying, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know what you want to do. I, I'm going to subscribe to the it's the thought that counts philosophy. <laughs> we love you very much. And really, you know, yeah, there's so many things I just can't say on the air. But just <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You're so patient with at least one of the people on this show. <laughs> Thank you for that, David. It means a lot to me. I know. Wow. wow. No, no, no. I'm the one he has to be patient with. I'm the one he has like, to be he patient with. You just threw me under the bus. Like, God, yes, David, we all think. Not, <laughs> Not at all. 
I was like trying to like I was trying to cop to it. Like I'm the one that needs patience, and I tried to own it until Angelina, you blew your own cover. I did. This is what happens. I did not recognize an attempt at chivalry. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> you, you, you took out your sword to slay the monster. I think you're trying to kill me. That is a metaphor for my life, right there. That is it. Now everyone understands me better. <laughs> That is funny. That is a great segue. Well, (laughs) thank you. Thank you both for the thought. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for the the birthday wishes. It's, it's, I'm, it's, it's weird to be. Did you know that I share a birthday with Cindy Rollins? I did not know that. What? we do. We share. We we figured that we out. We're missing she, a serious Cersei birthday when, opportunity here. When she was writing her book, we figured that out. That she we have the same birthday, and it's Saint Nicholas Day. So we both have Saint Nicholas Day. Which somebody pointed sense. out to me that what's that? It makes sense. Y'all have very similar vibes about you. That really dry kind of sense of humor and <laughs> that, that madcap that's just right into the surface with a twinkle <laughs> in the eye. I can see that. Ah, uh, the twinkle <laughs> in the eye. Yes, the old twinkle in the eye. So. um <laughs> I've been I've been complimented about the twinkle in my eye before, um, the, um, but it's interesting uh, because somebody pointed out uh, our I don't know if you you guys know Jamie Kane I can't remember if you know him so he's a headmaster yes I met him at the literary retreat yeah yeah so he's a friend of ours um, and he post, po- posted on my Facebook wall and said you have the best birthday and I was thinking it kind of is a great birthday because it's on Saint Nicholas Day which is which is fun. Um, it's also like at a good time of year. So like the whole month of December growing up was kind of fun because at the beginning was my birthday and then there was Christmas, but like, it felt like everything extended. So the whole month of December was just kind of, it made it for the whole thing from Thanksgiving to new year's was, was a great time for me growing up. It's like, you know, it's different when you're an adult, you don't like your birthday doesn't mean as much when you're not 13 or seven. (laughs) Um, but it's still fun because on the fifth is my son's birthday. Jeremiah turned five yesterday. Oh, that's right. So, oh, that was his big birthday then. Five on the fifth. Exactly. This is what they call it, the golden birthday or whatever. Is that what they call it? What they well, call we it? called it the big birthday, but we were backwoods, you know, in a pirogue in the swamp. So what do we know? We barely had English. So I don't know what you call it. <laughs> uh, whatever it is. I'm sure somebody out there is like, these people are morons. It's obviously. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the response I'm getting every week. So it's yeah, fine. Yeah. It's becoming more and more common. So, um, his birthday was yesterday, so we got him a guitar because he's very musical and he was he Aww. loved this guitar. Uh, actually, one of, we got it from a listener, uh, someone who listens to this show. Actually, is a friend of ours, and we got that from her. And so we gave it. That was part of his birthday present. But anybody who knows Jeremiah or has ever seen pictures of him will also love this part. So he got a guitar, and then he got six ties and a bow tie. Wow! For his fifth birthday. So the great thing is he now has a tie for every day of the week which is a very Jeremiah thing to do because when we wake up in the morning, he is often dressed head to toe in dress clothes. So if he, if he's going out somewhere, not talking, we're not talking church here. Like if he's going to get Mexican food at the restaurant or we're going to the store or even the farmer's market, the man dresses like Don Draper in 1961. He has, uh, <laughs> he wears a suit if he can find it, always a tie of some kind, a button down shirt, he does go casual with cowboy boots and then he has either some kind of not jeans, never jeans, some kind of either black dress pants or corduroy is his casual, his casual wear. So he now has bow ties and ties to go with it, with the whole. Outfit. And I would just like to point out to our listeners that not only does your son look like Don Draper, but he is as smooth as Don Draper. <laughs> he is really? He really like he's 
the smoothest man I've ever encountered. I'm not even lying. So we're at the, we're in the mountains at the condo and he comes over to me and he says, uh, would you like to step onto the balcony? I said, why, yes. Yes, I would. He opens the sliding glass door. He leads me out there. He like shows me the view and he's making eyes at me. I'm like, this might be the best date I've ever had. And he's just doing the thing. And then I said, I turned to go back in and he said, where are you going? And I said, no, I'm just going to go in for, for just a second. I'm, I'm going to go use the bathroom. And he said, wait here. I'm going to go flush the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> that was a true act of chivalry and it touched my heart so deeply i have not i've not heard the end part of that but what i'd like to know is there's a whole there's, there's gotta be a whole prequel to that story there's gotta be <laughs> there's something else he he knew and there was an earlier story going on there that we probably can't talk about on the show <laughs> He is funny because he's very, um, he's got very, like, his, he's got these really, like, interesting eyes and, like, his coloring. Like, he's just got a very, he does have a kind of a debonair look about him at all times. He's, I mean, I'll just say, he's kind of a handsome kid. And his older brother, and, he, and he's, like, sort of, like, he's kind of an odd kid, too. He's very, like, um, his older brother, you know what he's thinking at all times, you know? And um, Jeremiah, you don't know what he's thinking all the time like he he's a little kid so he gets upset and he throws fits and he yells about stuff sometimes because he's just turned five but half the time he's like all mysterious and then he'll like give you this look and he's the kind of kid that like when he's in trouble he just gives you this look and you can't help but start laughing at him you know so it's gonna be a problem it's gonna be a real problem (laughs) sounds like it between the he's gonna make up for all of it with charm between between the charm and the ties and the musical abilities, which it turns out he actually seems to have. I mean, he is, he's going to be in for an interesting Okay, life. so you're telling me he's an emotionally troubled, charming musician. I understand now what happens between <laughs> me and him. <laughs> we'll have to see what, we'll have to see what becomes of, what becomes of, of his fifth year. But um, anyway, before we dive into 12th tonight, I just want to say quickly a couple things about some other things that are going on on the podcast network. We have a ton of content right now and I am sitting in our new Angelina we, ooh, new ooh. recording studio space. Um, it's, it's, um, it, we, we've got some things set up. It's better. It's we're not like sitting on in Brian and Matt's office now or in like a closet. Um, it's not, not where we want it to be yet, but we've got it closer. Um, and so we are sending, we had to get a new space because we've got all kinds of new shows going on. We're recording hours and hours of content every week. That's going to be spread out over the course of the whole year. Um, in this weekly shows that we've talked about before them, um, they ask Andrews every week, form is every week, this shows every week. We've got the Mason jar. Um, and of course we've got Brian's show, the commons, which is on season two right now. And Brian's going through 10 different figures in church history. So, so far he's talked about John Chrysostom and St. Ambrose. And then he's going to be talking about the Cappadocian Fathers. We're running that tomorrow on Thursday. So by the time this show airs, that'll already be up. Um, So make sure you check that out. You can get that feed by itself or in the network or in the network feed. Uh, Matt Bianco's got a show coming up this spring called The Divided Line. um, And that's going to be all about Plato. So he's been recording all kinds of interviews with people going through all these different topics that he's been encountering as he writes his PhD on Plato. So he's trying to unpack these things that he's trying to understand. So he's bringing guest experts from all over the country, everybody from college professors to friends of his. Oh, um, there's going to be guests. See, I just imagined it was going to be Matt doing Socratic questions with himself. (laughs) What do I think about this? (laughs) 
<laughs> that that actually would be very interesting. Maybe we should maybe we should rewrite that show. Um, we've got a whole so we've got a ton of content. So be on the lookout for that. We'd love it if you would subscribe to those individual shows. Um, it's uh, we're not going to be able to keep posting things on just the network feed all the time as more and more content comes out because it's just it gets expensive and there's not the space. So if you can subscribe to those feeds, that would be very helpful, and you'd be able to get all that on the day that it comes out. It won't be just kind of. It'll, everything will be more organized for you and it'll be easier for you to go get archives. If you're going back, you know, iTunes only lets us have a hundred episodes. So when we're posting 12, 15 episodes a week, you know, if you're trying to go back to find an old commons or an old close reads episode, it's hard to do that on iTunes. If you're just subscribed to the network feed, the podcast, the Cersei podcast network feed, but if you subscribe to the individual shows, you can go back and find the archives much more easily. Um, in fact, uh, pretty much every episode since we switched it over to its own feed will be available on there for, for a while. So, um, so I just wanted to put that out there. Um, thanks to everyone who's been supporting us through Patreon. I hope you all have your, your close reads swag. If you've not received something yet, um, it might mean that we have not heard from you yet uh, with your choice of your poster or your t-shirt size or whatever it is. So check the Patreon messages or emails for an email from us uh, asking you what you want if you haven't received it yet. If you subscribed um, during... Well, whatever month you subscribed in, the stuff's going to start being mailed out on the first of the next month. So if you subscribe on December 7th, things will go out on January 1st or so. That's how Patreon does it when they, the way they bill and have us do it. So just wanted to clear that stuff up. All right, that's out of the way. Let's talk 12th night now. Are you guys ready? Ready. Or, or did I just put you to sleep? Uh, no. No, I'm, yeah. Okay. So all the <laughs> listeners have, they've skipped ahead through all my talking just now. They did that 15 second thing where you, on your iPhone where you can press. No. Like seven times. Um, Go back and listen to all of it. I insist. <laughs> Angelina has, is putting is laying a lot down. She's putting her foot down. We're here to talk about Act Three of Twelfth Night. This is the third of five episodes on this little Shakespeare play. And I was thinking as I was reading this time about how readable this play is. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah. I feel yeah. like that was a trick question. No, no. <laughs> no. Like, I'm not sure how to answer this. No, like, Treading just, lightly. So, you know, like, um, for me, a play like King Lear or um, a Rich, Richard III or something is obviously it's Shakespeare, so it's readable, but there's a different pace to it. There's a different energy to it. Do you um, mean, what, are you, what, are we, what exactly are you asking with the question? Do I find it lighter? And Well, do you find that you kind of, it's almost like you can breeze through it? Yes. That's what I guess that's what I'm kind of saying. Like it's not as dense. Yeah, it's not as dense. Um and there's it, you know, I guess the humor intentionally so, intentionally so. Right, right. Um that was all I was wondering. I wasn't like a big I wasn't actually I didn't actually mean anything by the question. Like I wasn't even leading into anything else. I was just wondering <laughs> if you agreed with me. What do you I what really do you guys like think? To know what the questions are asking before <laughs> I agree. That's just a little thing I do. <laughs> Go ahead. Do Tim. you do you think that there is what is the most readable Shakespeare play? Oh gosh, hmm. I don't know. Uh, maybe Much Ado About Nothing. Oh yeah, that's very readable. That might be the one for me, but also I think that might be taste. Like some people might ha enjoy the slow burn pace of like Macbeth. Yeah. I really like reading Macbeth a lot, and I also really like reading The Taming of the Shoe a lot. I mean, those are just two oh, yeah. Yeah. favorites of mine. Yeah, yeah. there's going to be a... And I imagine that different factors of taste and experiences go into, go into a play. Like if you read a play as a kid and you had a terrible teacher or something and it ruined it for you, then going back to it as an adult for the first time might have some... It might not be as 
you know, readable as you would, as it is for say you, Tim, or something like that. I don't know. It's kind of a matter of taste, I suppose. Yeah. I, I think Julius Caesar is very readable. Also. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, yeah. that's a good one. If you, if you want to start, you know, if anybody's kind of hasn't really jumped into Shakespeare mm-hmm. and they want a place to begin, I might start with, um, much ado about nothing or Julius Caesar, just because the language is probably the most tame. I think it's very deliberately tame in Julius Caesar because he's kind of trying to imitate that Roman, um, sparsity. Yeah. Yeah. They are not given to ornament. Um, and it shows up, I think in the speech very Mm. deliberately. Oh Mm. yeah. That's part of Brutus's rhetorical style. Yeah. I totally agree. I think a lot of, a lot of homeschool recommendations as Julius Caesar as a starting place. I, I think, I think a lot of people start there. I think it helps that there's a historical context too. That can be. Yes, you're right. It's characters that we're going to be somewhat familiar with. Right. The story is not, you know, the story is essentially, there's not like disguises and hijinks and all that. I mean, there's battle and stuff, but basically it's, do we kill this guy? Okay. We kill him. Then we all fight about it afterwards. <laughs> and there's a historical context that's just easy to explain. It's one of the stories that most of these kids will have read about, even just in their sixth grade Famous Men of Rome book, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally but, agree. Yeah. Well, in Act 3 of Twelfth Night, to get back to the play at hand, um, we get an interesting sort of transitional act. Do you, so what I was wondering is... I want to talk a little bit about the structure of how Shakespeare works. And I oh, think good. Have, I was hoping we'd talk about that. I was thinking you guys might each have different perspectives on this as you have with many things that we've talked about in the first two uh, episodes of this, because is there in Shakespeare, um, a rising action, climax, falling action structure that is typical, you know, that is kind of the trip, the typical, um, analysis of, of most stories or the way the story is presented. And if so, does that mean that right here we're, we're leading up to a sort of climactic action um, that's going to then feed down into a resolution in the following two acts? Or how does that work in Shakespeare? Hmm. So Angelina, I'll let you address that first. And then Tim, I'll let you respond to that or add to it if that works. Yeah. Seriously, if Tim disagrees with this, I'm quitting the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying anything revolutionary here. Yes, Shakespeare's plays all follow the same structure. They're all five acts. Um, the acts pretty much um, have the each each the same um, position and purpose in all of the plays. So um, the end of Act Three is always the climax, and he typically now there's a few exceptions to this, but <clears throat> he typically resolves. So everything's working to this tangle that we talked about, right? He typically mm-hmm. resolves them very very quickly in the fifth act. Fifth act is usually very very short. Um, a lot of critics point to the fourth act as the problem act because what do you do, right? The fourth act is essentially just prolonging this tension. It can't resolve it because he likes to resolve things quickly in the fifth act. So sometimes the fourth act is considered to be a problem act. Um, but uh, there are some exceptions to You're, that where I think the fourth I, Can act I ask is, a clarifying question about that? Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, our, some listeners might have heard that word in two different ways. Does that mean that Shakespeare is introducing a new problem or that the act itself is a problem for audiences and, and, and scholars? Oh, I mean, I mean it in the sense of like, there's, it's almost like there's a stasis because you've already introduced all the tangles, but you can't quite untangle them yet. Okay. Okay. So it's a problem in terms of like the flow of the, okay. It's maybe problems, not the word. It's a challenge for Shakespeare to handle the fourth act. Hmm. 
Like he doesn't fail at it. It's just a challenge of the structure of it because he's already introduced the conflict. So what do you do with the fourth act? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In some of the plays, he does a slow, a slow resolution that you can't really see. It's the resolution, but it's building up to that. And then the fifth act, it's very quick how it all unravels. Mm -hmm. Okay. Tim, what we the kind of classic example of what Angelina is talking about, about the, the problem of the fourth act is Hamlet. I bet none of our listeners, uh, that's an exaggeration. I bet very few of our listeners have any notion of what happens in act four of Hamlet because it's never performed. I, I was going to say, don't they always cut it out? They always cut it out because <laughs> what happens is, I mean, it's exactly as you described, Angelina. In Hamlet, he's pursuing his revenge quest for the king it culminates in act three with the king kicking him out of Denmark and sending him away kind of ostensibly for his own protection. So act four is um, Hamlet's two buddies, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are really there to betray him and Hamlet getting on a ship and crossing the ocean, wherein Hamlet kills them so that he can go back to Denmark. Nobody ever performs it. I think maybe... I think that the Branagh version did include it because they made it a point of like doing the entire play, but it's very, very rare that people perform the entire play and act four. It's just as Angelina described the kind of climax of the action is at the end of three Hamlet getting kicked out. And then we're just kind of pardon the pun treading water in act four until Hamlet returns the beginning of act five. And then everything is sewn up at the end during the fencing match at the conclusion of five. Which act is it that the graveyard scene is that three? That is, I think that is the very first scene of five. Okay. And then what about the, the play within the play? Is that three? That's three. Okay. That is, I, I think that's either three, one or three, two. Okay. So that's part of our leading to the climax in, in Hamlet. Right. Right. So, um, did you, did you, you want to add anything to what you're saying there, Angelina? With the, um, the no, not really. I mean, there are certain thematic elements that fit the structure in the tragedy versus the comedy. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you expect certain plot elements, um, archetypal elements to be in the different acts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part of what's going to the entanglement in a comedy, part of what's going to happen, there's always a death penalty. We see that here, right? Someone's under threat of death. Um, and then there's the mistaken identity and that's going to be related to disguise. And so it's all going to be tangled up. And then the fifth act, there'll be just a very, very fast, sudden reversal where everything is revealed and righted itself and everyone's mm. true identity is revealed and mm. the death penalty is lifted and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So act three in this play does exactly what you expect act three comedy to do. Somebody's under threat of death you have a mistaken identity it's just a huge messed up crisis and you can't see how you could possibly get out of this what's what's fun about 12 well the comedies are comedies because the conclusion of the play as you guys know what the conclusion of all of shakespeare's comedies are a wedding a wedding what's kind of fun about 12th night and I think it's true also of measure for measure is you're not quite sure who's going to marry who, at least in act three, you kind of yeah. got a notion, but there's a couple of wild cards, you know, and those characters who you get a sense that they're going to be something, but they really 
are so on the periphery right now. Like Sebastian, yeah. for example, he's right. made a few measly little scenes. I don't even know if they're a hundred lines each. Maybe they are, but they're not long. And you know, he's off in, he's off somewhere until all of a sudden he's not, <laughs> he's kind of like, you wouldn't, he, he's not, he hasn't interacted with any of our other primary characters. Right. He's so for his only point in here walk. is so that he can be mistaken for right. Viola exactly. in this right. scene and Antonio right. exposes himself and you know, comes forward and says, Hey, that's my friend. And then he gets caught. Right. Also kind of, I guess, offers a little bit of pathos in that, like we know he's alive, but Viola doesn't. Right. Yeah. Another question that's kind of looming is we maybe have a notion of who's going to get married in the end. Like Viola, it seems like she's going to get her man, the Duke. That's kind of what I'm hoping for at least. A question that was like, what's going to happen to Malvolio? Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, he's such a, especially in this act, he's become so absurd. So what is the kind of just treatment for an, an overweening, self-serving servant who has left his place in the kind of, <clears throat> um, in the Elizabethan, you know, structure of the world? What's What's going to be his kind of, poetic punishment that's one of the questions it's funny too because he's almost like a comic Macbeth in that he's got this vaulting ambition right yeah yeah do you have do do you guys have sympathy for him or do you just think he's ridiculous boy I like that question oh that's a hard question because obviously he's being tricked you know yeah and everybody knows well not everybody I guess technically Olivia doesn't know but as an Everybody that's tricking him, plus the audience, knows that while he certainly is, has this ambition and is something of a, you know, I don't know, choose your word. Um, and he's difficult to be around and all those things. Like, he's not very likable. He's still being tricked into doing what he's doing. And he wouldn't, yeah. had he not been tricked, despite his ridiculousness, he wouldn't have you know, worn the yellow socks and every the yellow stockings and everything. That's true. Been. But I, I think there's also a sense in here. I mean, yes, Sir Toby and gang, they, they're going to go pretty far yeah, <laughs> almost right. to the point of sadism. So I'm not like, I'm not totally excusing them. Yeah, It's funny until it's not right. <laughs> right. I mean, this is a comedy. It's a madcap comedy. And so everything's going too far, including the, the trick they're playing on them. So I even yeah, it's, saying it's like some like a pot. Yeah, it's like, uh, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with leaving the question, am I sympathetic? Because everything is supposed to be drawn out to this huge exaggeration, right? Um, so no, I mean, nobody should be treated like Malvolio is treated. But there's also the sense in which they trick him by getting him to believe what he already wanted to believe. Ah, okay, yeah. And so in that sense, it's a little bit of a just dessert for him, right? Because he, he says that, oh, I knew it. I knew there was something in her look. I knew she was in love with me. I knew, I knew. It seems like that's happening a lot in this play, though. Um, not specifically convincing someone that somebody else loves them, but that people are using things that people already want or desire against them. Right? Or like they, they kind of get Oh, reversed. yeah. So like, I mean, we'll see it. I don't want to say too much about Orsino right now, but you kind of like... Orsino's people are using Orsino's like we talked about how he's not really in love with her he's in love with the idea of being in love and Olivia's not really like she's mourning her brother but she's also kind of in love with the idea of the drama of it right mm-hmm. and they kind of those things kind of get flipped on their heads for people so like Orsino's idea with um the idea that he's in love with being in love gets kind of used against him in a way 
the same Olivia's affection for drama, so to speak, kind of gets used, you know, used against him. And yeah. that, I'm trying to think how my observation about Act Three fits with what you're saying because I think it does fit. Although I'm, I'm, what do you mean your observation about the structure? Yeah, which one? So, no, no one, one I'm about to make. So I wrote oh, okay. <laughs> in my book in Act Three that Act Three is like if everything was opposite day, because all the characters oh. are being told repeatedly don't believe the evidence of your eyes. It really means the opposite. Oh, if she's being mean to you, it means she's in love with you. Mm -hmm. Right? And so all of the characters are having that conversation. Wait, what? That's that's just a fact of life, right? If a woman's (laughs) being mean to you, she probably loves you. (laughs) And if a boy pulls your pigtails, it means he likes you. Yes, topsy-turvy world. But in in this act especially, so Toby tells... His friend, no, don't give up your hope for Olivia, even though she's totally. And he's talking you to off. Andrew. Andrew, right? And they she, I know she's blowing letter. you off, but that just means she wants you to come back and make her jealous and fight for her. Oh so, no, I know you saw her with the other guy, totally expressing her love. That was just because she knew you were there, and she's trying to make you jealous. So everybody is being told to believe the opposite of what they see. And Toby sees himself as this manipulative, like ringmaster. Yes. So what's coming for him is another question. <laughs> Obviously, he's about to get knocked upside the head by love because that's what's happening in the story. And again, we see the idea of love is madness. There's a lot of madness in here. And so Malvolio is acting like a crazy person because he's in love, right? But he's being manipulated about it. But So it's comic. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this kind of... I want to roll out kind of a, a, a budding theory that I've had about Shakespeare. And I'm going to do this on the fly, which... Oh, I love this. Let's do this. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. <laughs> you love it more than I do. I do. I love on the fly. Let's go. I have found, fly, honestly... Theories about Shakespeare? Yeah. Like, I'm sure that somebody already has this theory. But think about Shakespeare as an author, the world that he's living in. The world that he's living in is absolutely torn in half Protestants and Catholics. Mm-hmm. And it's the Renaissance. And everything about the medieval world is starting to kind of get a little bit wobbly. It's not falling apart by any means, but it's starting to wobble a little bit. The things, the kind of furniture of the universe is starting, the screws are coming loose from the underpinning. And everything is just not quite square anymore. I mean, I'm just going to take for granted that our readers know all the kind of historical reasons why scientific advancements, um, the Ptolemaic view of the universe, world exploration. There's this sense that like a huge one is Europe believed itself to be kind of um, the rising action of civilized Christendom. And now they're finding all of these in the Americas, sometimes highly advanced civilizations um, and they kind of can't explain it. How can there be another super advanced civilization that existed independent of the Christian church going forth? So these are all big questions in Shakespeare's day. Uh, can so, I just say something to add to what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. I don't want to derail you. I'm just going to support you here. Like, yeah. So what I talked about a couple of episodes ago about that intense Renaissance hierarchy and how everything had to be in its proper place or the whole universe is going to unravel. So medieval man is this great codifier. He's got to put everything in its right place. And the Renaissance challenge was that suddenly there was all this new stuff. And they're trying to fit it. Like they're not giving up the thought, I can fit it in here somehow. Right. But it was really right. challenging. So I like what you say about the screws are kind of cr- – there's definitely a tension to this hierarchy because there's this fear, if I can't find a place to put this stuff, 
the whole world will unravel. Exactly. And Shakespeare's living right in the middle of it. Um, yeah, I always think of, we've talked about this in the show before, the medieval mind is, um, it's a synthesizing mind. And you've got multiple authorities, the three main authorities being the Catholic Church, the scriptures, and probably some amalgam of the Greek philosophers, but probably Aristotle more even than Plato. And so if some new scientific finding occurs during that synthesizing period, which is kind of concluding during Shakespeare's day, some new scientific finding occurs, it's believed from the get-go to not be in conflict in any way with those three authorities. Mm -hmm. So you just fit in the new finding. But Shakespeare is living in a time that those three things, people are starting to wonder, maybe they don't say the same thing. And Thomas Aquinas um, and the medievals are also kind of rediscovering more Aristotle and more Plato that was previously lost. So they just kind of had scraps of Plato, but um, the Muslim world had preserved a lot of Aristotle and some Plato. Those are being translated now into probably Latin and maybe, yeah, probably Latin for the first time in maybe a millennia. So what's, what's a playwright to do in a situation where the kind of moral furniture that people sit in, the moral floorboards that people stand on and walk on are starting to become kind of loose and disjointed and wobbly. Well, I think what Shakespeare does is he appeals to sort of um, kind of, uh, I want to be careful with this word, kind of a primal morality. And I don't mean primal like, um, savage i mean sort of like a a what are the things that human beings have constantly found to be true untrue good bad and thus one of the things that shakespeare goes after more than anything else is hypocrisy when someone states a belief and then they counter that stated belief that stated virtue with their own behavior it's his favorite thing to make fun of. It's, it's his favorite thing to not just lampoon in the comedies, but to also really go after in the tragedies as, as a, a downfall of the mighty person in the play. And so I wonder if in Twelfth Night, if that's a little bit what's going on, Shakespeare is having the characters state what they want, and then he's kind of giving it to them. He's just letting them have it and letting human nature kind of play out when you get this thing that you want, namely, I love love. I just love, 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 love. Okay, what does it look like when you actually fall in love or when your love is completely thwarted? What happens? And I think that's part of the reason he's so successful is because you can take that vision, that kind of primal, what I'm calling primal, there's probably a better word for it, but that kind of like, um, oh, I don't know, that, that morality that is essential to all human beings. And you could export it into Chinese culture and people are going to recognize a hypocrite's a hypocrite. Hmm. So while you were talking, as you were leading up to your point and you were talking about 
how he does it in the tragedies, I was thinking, well, yes, this is exactly why in the comedies, the disguise motif is so important, right? Because it is the, it's the disconnect between the outside and the inside, right? You are, we're all in disguise, everything's being concealed and hidden. And so the whole action of a comedy then is that all the hidden things are revealed. Hmm. Yeah. So that, that fits in with this whole hypocrisy idea, right? That, yeah. That's why there's so much mistaken identity. And, and that's why there's so much disguise and people wearing the wrong clothes and, and on all the levels that it operates, right? Because there's also a sense in which they're playing the hypocrite because they don't, because there's two types. There's the hypocrite who's intentionally just like, you know, play the serpent, you know, be the flower, but play the serpent underneath kind of Macbeth hypocrisy, right? I'm deliberately deceiving. <laughs> and then there's right. the hypocrisy huh. yeah. that comes because you just don't know yourself. Yeah. That your, your own heart is even hidden from you. And so he plays, he plays with that a whole lot. So there's all these levels in which hidden and revealed and concealed and revealed comes together, right? So I was yeah, reading yeah. this article that talked about, and I thought this really came out in Act 3. I underlined all the places where I saw it. There's even the idea in Shakespeare. So we talked about the clothing motif as the single most important you know, motif metaphor in all of Shakespeare, which totally fits with everything Tim just said about the hypocrisy theme. I think that goes together, right? You're not wearing this, the right clothes. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I was reading this article that said that that's even operating on the level with the words. So every time Shakespeare's punning and having a mistaken word, he's also showing that words are also used to conceal and confuse, right? Everybody's confused. That's why there's all these play on words. And then ultimately yeah. the words flip around yeah. and now the words are clear and the meaning is revealed. Mm -hmm. And so with a character like Andrew, he's, he's constantly mistaking words. He's not doing it to be deceptive. He's doing it because he's just not that bright. Right. But right. other characters are doing it because they're, they know what they're up to and they're being deceptive and playful or, and not even in a bad way. I mean, we see Viola when she's kind of, um, but she can't say the truth, right? She can't say the truth. Right. So she gets into very clever wordplay kind of concealing the fact that she's a woman. To, or she's saying the truth, but in a way that's seems like it's not. Oh the yeah. That, that's right. talking to. Yeah. Yes. That's a better way of saying it. Dave. Like when she says, you know, my father has to know other daughters or whatever. Yes. Right. But the meaning is always hidden because of some element of the disguise. And so the, this, the conversation that opens act three is one long conversation between the viola and the clown about words. Mm -hmm. And that words hide the real meaning and that how quickly words can get turned the wrong way. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which sets up, you know, everything that's going to happen in, in Act 3 when everybody's being told, believe the opposite. Believe the opposite of what you see. One yeah. of the things that I, I was thinking about as you were kind of talking there, Angelina, is that if, the, if there was not some kind of um, uh, conflict that was on the horizon or, 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 you know, drives them to change or drives everybody to some sort of action, they could have all just stayed in this sort of like this sort of static it stayed in their disguises in a static fashion for as long as they wanted to sort of, but then this conflict is introduced that drives yeah. them to make decisions that ultimately reveals who they are. And so, that's why the conflict always has to be about <coughs> death in the comedy, even oh, though right. sometimes it's crazy there, how they get to that. Because there has to be stakes. Yes. Yeah. Because the end game of all this hypocrisy and not knowing yourself is death. 
right? That you either are having a movement toward death or you're having a movement toward life. And so they have huh. to, they keep moving to more and more toward death with all the levels of disguise and how everything's so hidden and they don't know themselves and they're all hypocrites. And so then it has to flip around for everything to be revealed and then to move toward life. But then yes, also in terms of the plot. You mean because, because the nature of being swallowed up or diving deeper into the disguise is such that you, your identity yes. gets swallowed It's a up. loss of the self, which is yeah. a type of death. Which right. is that's part of the disguise motif. Right, right, right. Go on, sorry. No, I mean that's that that's pretty much it. Just well, that the debt. Okay, so like I agree with what you're saying that there what there has to be a motivation for them to suddenly stop being in disguise. So right? at the end of Act Three, well, what's really interesting to me about Act Three structurally is the way the real con- like the actual true conflict of you know them come uh, um, the officers coming in and taking away. Um, uh, Antonio, Antonio and his life's actually being at stake. Like there being real, real, real true stakes there is what drives ultimately them to make some yes. in Act Four. But prior to that, there's this like faux conflict that Toby and uh, Fabian or whatever are setting up between Andrew and Viola, where they're like trying to convince them each to have a sword fight to have a real yeah and then Olivia is or Viola is trying to decide, well, how much of my true self do I reveal to avoid the conflict? Mm-hmm. But she, and, and in the end, she doesn't have to because it all, all the, and everything gets really, really messy with the real conflict instead of the fake conflict. But that's and, the irony. She takes on the disguise of a man to save her life because a woman's not safe on her own. And yeah. then the disguise of being this beautiful man gets her, <laughs> gets her right. in trouble and she almost loses her life over it. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking about, you know, we started off talking about how we, everybody knows what's going to happen in this play. There's going to be marriages at the end. The only question, and they're not even really complicated questions. The only questions are who's going to marry who? Well, we kind of already know that. And all of Shakespeare's comedies are the exact same story over and over and over, even down to the things that Angelina is pointing out, the kind of reversal and the kind of like unmasking to reveal like the true selves or whatever. And I've thought about why is this so satisfying that as grown adults, we can watch the same story in Shakespeare over and over and over. One reason is because Shakespeare's words, there's nobody like him, nobody in the world like him as far as just playfulness elegance, beauty, rigor of thought, kind of dialect, robust dialectic conversations between the self and the self, between the self and others. So those are kind of like on the surface reasons why we keep going back to Shakespeare. But I also wonder if the whole kind of mask motif, the disguise that's, that gets taken off during or right before the climax, appeals to something like even deeper in us, which is, I think, that the hardest thing in the world to do is to have a true vision of yourself. Hmm. It's so, so difficult. I mean, constantly because of, you know, just our feeling of being at home in the world, but also not at home in the world. Like our position is always fraught with, with sickness, with the potential of death, with not being loved, with not being honored, all of these things. And 
those possibilities are so painful to look straight into hmm. that we kind of make up stories. And I mean, some, sometimes the stories can be true, but sometimes the stories can just be ways that we kind of hide our deepest fears for ourselves. And so when I think about Shakespeare's unmaskings, when pe- it's not just that they're the people who are being unmasked, the characters who are being unmasked, they're not just being revealed to the audience. But I wonder, I mean, we're getting like into sort of like Jungian archetypes no, here. No, I'm so, you're speaking my language. Keep going. Right? I'm I so excited right now. You have no idea how excited I am. Keep talking, keep talking. It's like, we're, it's like this is kind of like the thing that we're hoping might happen to us, that our true identity might be revealed. And at the same time, it will be safe for it to happen. We'll be, um, we'll get married, we will get esteemed, or the punishment will be tolerable and just so that we can be put in our right place again. So it seems like a big part of it, though, one of the things that Shakespeare is saying in a play like this is that the conceptions we have about ourselves are so important, too, because you look at Malvolio, who has this wrong conception of himself, of his own limitations, and of what his place in the world should be. And so that conception of himself drives him nearly to madness or makes him susceptible to the, uh, we'll just say to the trickery of others. Uh huh. Yes. And Viola is the only one wearing an actual disguise, but she's the only one who knows herself. Yeah. I was good. Yeah. She's the only one who purposefully puts on you know, the, clothes, the clothes that, of somebody else. And then now that's, and that's a little different motif in this story than you might find in others. But I think what he's drawing attention to is that often it, <laughs> It's the, it's, the, it's the disguise you don't know you're wearing. That's the problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like bottom so, with, the, with, the, with the donkey's head. Right, 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 so right. You right, have right. to first know that you don't know yourself, right? That's the starting point. You have to understand that what you see is not really who you are. And so you have to work through the whole thing to, for, for the unveiling, the, un, the unmasking. Well, but, and that's, that's much ado about nothing, right? The end where, where you've got uh, Claudius, Cla- Claudio? Claudio. Claudio. He has to choose between, he thinks the hero is dead, right? Right, right. So you've got these four, three or four women or whatever that all have the veils on. Beatrice, Heroes One. I can't remember. I can't remember all the names. of. I think it's the servant girls, the other one. Yeah. 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 And, and so he, they're, all, they're all wearing a veil that makes their true identity, you know, he doesn't know who the true identity is. And so the father is going to give the one and he has to basically accept her regardless of what her identity is because he's wrong the one whose identity he didn't know that kind of took it on a tangent there i didn't really mean that part to go that direction but anyway okay but okay so to speak to to what okay so i have 10 things he went into the deep weird buckle up boys so (laughs) (laughs) i'm just gonna take my show notes and throw them in the trash i'll try to rein it in but just know anybody that ever buys me a glass of wine will hold a full version of this but so yeah, I think this is I think this is what it means to enter the mystery of a story and be transformed by it, right? It's it's the idea of catharsis but so much more. So mm-hmm. you enter into the mystery of the story and then we are going through this with these characters, right? Mm-hmm. We are learning that we also are in disguise and we can't see it. That we also do not know who we are and that the reason we don't know who we are is because we're so disordered because our souls are topsy-turvy, right? That our souls have to be reordered and then we will know who we are. And at the end of the story, knowing who we are, that is what will lift the death penalty. That is what will bring about reconciliation and redemption. Um, and, and of course, on a Christian level, because our listeners might be like, what is she talking about? Well, that's what it means to find your identity in Christ, right? 
we are not Hindus. We do not, we're not Buddhists. We do not believe in the annihilation of the self, right? I'm not going to be united to nirvana and cease being me. No, to be united with Christ means to be who you truly are, to have the utmost knowledge of who you really are without being distorted or blinded by sin or my, my heart's all messed up. And so I don't know who I am. I'm going to really know who I am when I'm united to Christ. And so I think that these plays are just acting all of that out. There's a sense in which every story is the everyman story. And the fact that Shakespeare can make so many varieties of the same theme speaks to his incredible genius. But yes, I think this is why we keep coming back there. Just like Tim says, I want to know at the end of the story, if I take my mask off, people will still love me. Right. Yeah. And I even think, I mean, this is, the story of the Greek tragedies also, I mean, it's so much of the Greek tragedies are questions of identity. I'm thinking about Oedipus. Oedipus mm -hmm. desperately wants to know who he is. He desperately wants to hide and not discover who he is. Um, Arthur Miller, Death of a Salesman, we mentioned it in the last two podcasts, are the kind of anti-hero hero, the salesman, wants to kind of go back to the way that things were. But in order to do that, he has to discover who he is and what he's done. And it's, that's the tragedy. And it's all, so much of it is bound up in discovering or evading one's true identity. And I completely agree with you, Angelina, about like, this is what the gospel is. Jesus, the incarnation of God is who we aspire to be, and yet there's also this inborn recognition that we cannot get there, that we have fallen so short. But that's the kind of um, key lock of the gospel is kind of a recognition of both of those things at the same time. And that he sees us as we truly are. Yeah. And, and accepts us and puts us right. Yes, puts us in, yes, in, in, yes, yeah. yes. And, and that one day we will also be able to see ourselves as we truly are. I mean, the whole through a glass darkly, that means a lot of things, but it also means that we can't even see ourselves properly. Exactly. I, I think, hey, we're just like jumping fully into the deep end. Oh, but I'm, you know, I, this is my favorite thing <laughs> ever. Keep going, keep going. I, I, I'm a, I am a Protestant. Um, and, you know, the Protestants started 500 years ago this year with Luther. And the thing, the way the Protestants read the scriptures was that it's primarily a story of salvation. And the story of salvation is primarily, primarily a story of guilt and relief from guilt, salvation from guilt, a breaking of the law. That is true. However, I think that the, the New Testament it's a bigger story than that. When Jesus arrives, the thing that he says when he begins his public ministry is not come to me for salvation of your sins. He says that, but at the beginning of his ministry, the message, the announcement is the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom. Sure. It begins within, but it's a total transformation. It's, it's a total transformation that begins with the self, but it moves outward. And I think that's part of, and so identity in Shakespeare's plays is at the root of kind of things being put back in a, for lack of a better phrase, kind of like a kingdom order. It begins with kind of like a true vision of the self and then things can be put outside of the self in their proper order. And I think that 
I don't know that Shakespeare was, I mean, I, I would never claim that he was like writing stories that conform to the kingdom of God on earth. I don't, I don't think so. But I do think that they, in this really deep structural way, that's one of the things we find so convincing is when the self is seen for what the self truly is. And when it's mirrored by kind of like um, the outside world accepting that, then you have harmony, then you have peace, then you have a lovely conclusion. See, but I would, I would add to what you're saying, like, no, I, okay, so I don't, I don't think an artist is a propagandist. I don't think he's saying, I'm just going to write an allegory of the Bible. But what makes an artist truly great is that he tells the truth, right? What he shows is real. And the real thing, there is only one real thing that can be shown, right? And every good artist shows it because it is the real thing. It is the true thing. And that is the transcendent reality of the gospel message. That's why, that's why I argue in this book that may never finish getting written. But this is why I argue that every story tells the gospel story because it tells the true story. There is only one true story. That's, that's what's being told. And, well, first I'll say this, Tim, I don't think I've ever liked you more than I like you right now. And secondly, <laughs> and secondly this identity motif, so I talked about this in my, in my talk in Austin when I was talking about disguise and identity in Shakespeare. Um, Christ comes in disguise. He's God and he is in right. disguise. It's not just that he was high and he became lowly. He's in disguise. The question that pushes forward the entire action of the gospel is, who is that guy? Who is that Joseph's son? Who is that, this is that carpenter. That's a guy from Galilee. Who is that guy? And Jesus never answers it. It's always, who do you say I am? Who do people yeah. say I am? Who do you think I am? Right? There's this identity question at the core of it. And, and even his disciples struggle with, who is he? That's why when he dies, they kind of have that moment of, oh, I guess he's not who we thought he was. Right? Yeah. So it's really not until the ascension that his identity is finally revealed. Right? this is who I am. You hear the voice and he goes up and, um, and there's been clues to his identity all along, but there has been this disguise motif right through the, right through the gospel. So again, you know, there's a sense in which Christ is outside of us and he's doing this thing to us, but there's also the sense in which he's the example of, of humanity, right? He's the example of what we all go through and all of us are born in disguise because of our fallen natures, right? All yeah. of us have as our essential question, who am I? And so we're pushing forward the action of our lives, trying to figure out who am I? And I want to graft onto that, Angelina. Like, like Viola, beginning the book, beginning of the shipwreck. Right. Oh, yeah. I want to graft onto one of the things about um, Jesus, his identity is hidden. <laughs> and the moment that, he, that his identity is unhidden, in the gospels is the moment where he starts asking the disciples who people say that he is. You are Elijah, John the Baptist returned from the dead, but who you say that I am the Messiah, the son of the living God. Okay. The, the, the highest praise probably given anybody in the new Testament is Jesus' response to Peter saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then the worst condemnation happens like, 60 seconds later, also delivered to Peter. And the, the, the problem that Peter, what Peter does is he rejects the identity of the Messiah, or he rejects, he wants the Messiah to be 
there with them now. And he gets praised for recognizing it. He gets praised that God has revealed this to him. But then when Jesus says that he has to go to Jerusalem and in three, you know, be killed in three days later, I read that as Peter saying, no, 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 no. That's not what our Messiah does. Our Messiah is going to come in like, he's going to mow people down. So he rejects this, the idea that, this, that the Messiah must suffer and that he's a must suffering Messiah. And when he rejects that, he rejects the true identity of Jesus. What does he get? He gets, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> it's like the worst possible thing to do yes, because is reject Satan the nature. Is the deceiver. He's the one who keeps you from knowing who you are. And he's the one from keeping Peter from knowing who Christ is. So yeah, yeah. the temptation here he for Christ is get behind me, Satan, because the temptation is for, for Jesus to deny who he really is. Which is also the temptation of what happens to Jesus in the wilderness, right? It's three temptations to be somebody other than who he really is. Right, yeah. Okay. David, what do you say? I miss what you said. Yeah, I feel uh, like we've just uh, mowed you down. Like, what's Shakespeare? Tim and I on a tangent. We're getting into the yeah, right. reality of the universe. Guys, this is my favorite thing ever. Don't worry. I've just been sitting here reading Twitter. Um, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, Have you been tweeting Know Thyself? Because I hope yeah. you've been doing <laughs> The lesson of today's show. Um, I think what I just said was you guys were talking about Satan and all that because Satan is the deceiver and I said he often comes in disguise. Um, so, okay, this is what I want to do. We are at an hour right now. So what I'd like to do is let's turn back towards the play a little bit. And I want to spend the last few minutes of the show by each of you kind of taking some of the things that we're talking about and let's look forward to what people are going to read in act four and act five, as you've said, act four tends to be the problem act we'll call it. And then act five, the resolution happens quickly. So when we talk about act four next week, what are some of the things that you think based on the conversation we read that's been going on here, um, that you two have been having, what, um, <laughs> what, uh, should people look forward to? And this time I'll flip it and go to you, Tim first, and then I'll let Angelina give us the final word. Oh, David, I do not remember act four. I mean, so you're asking kind of like almost based on the geometry yeah, of the self the, that we've put forth. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, okay. also not, I'm not necessarily saying like, tell me about the plot so much as like, are there things that, are related to this identity conversation that we're having here, identity-based conversation or whatever you want to call it, that people should look out for that is yeah. either common to most Shakespeare plays as they resolve or are specific to this play. Yeah. So one thing that I'm looking for is uh, the character of Malvolio, who maybe is the most deceived of, of all of the characters. I'm eager to see how he will come to recognize not only that his lady is not in love with him, but he was terribly overreaching in. He's not who of, he thought he was. Yeah, he's just not who he thought he was, and he's not going to get to be who he thought he was. So I'm interested to know in four and five, well, what what is going to put him right? Hmm. Can someone, can can there be a, uh, there, I can't imagine there are many greater tragic moments in the light in your in our lives and we all experience this to some degree yeah. or another where you think you are something that you realize you're not and then how do you recover from that yeah right that's like that's a deeply tragic moment even on a small scale and it's something that we all happens to all of us right i was talking to Let's, um 
I was talking to uh, Brian Phillips in the office, Graham and, Graham and Brian earlier. We were talking about birthdays and how like, as you get older, your birthdays, I said this earlier, your birthday is not as big a deal as when you're seven or whatever, right? But as you get, like I was saying, if you'd asked me when I was 18, what I was going to be like when I was 31 or whatever, I probably would be like, oh, I would publish like seven books of fiction. I have like made two movies or something, you know? And so you look back and you're like, I didn't accomplish the things like my life. I turned out as a different person than what I thought I was going to, or at least I accomplished different things. And I mean, I'm lucky because in my case, I don't view that as a tragedy, right? I'm not saying that, but you look back and in small ways and in big ways throughout our lives, we're always, I feel like saying, I'm not the person that I thought I was. Every time we do something uh-huh. that's like, where we wrong somebody else or whatever i feel like that's part of what conscience is right it's like realizing that you're not who you thought you were yeah um, and that every time that happens to yourself like maybe that's what leads you to repentance though so maybe it's tragic until you repent i, I don't know so maybe that's maybe that's what we should look for does my value malvolio repent malvolio i overtook your your thing to look for there i apologize for that no 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 that's great i you know those moments where we do like get a an honest vision of ourselves, they're often accompanying, it's like two things happen at once. They're typically the most painful experiences of our lives and they're typically the most freeing moments of our lives. Um, and the pain typically precedes the, the freedom. The freedom, yeah. I, I, I always think about, I had a friend, I'm not gonna use his name, who was so dedicated to Larry. his career it was larry just don't tell anybody i'm just, just kidding it's not larry. Just, just us and our 50, closest friends tim yeah. no one will know go ahead john <laughs> dovin said your friend john dovin said <laughs> stop stop i'm actually gonna you're gonna like i'm gonna fall into actually using his name okay okay, okay. he said keep the disguise he was up. completely john keep the disguise up he was so <laughs> dedicated to his law practice and his law career and he was a very decorated lawyer he won you know a Johnny lot of really important cases it was johnny cochran <laughs> i'm trying to listen to tim for once sorry. stop talking <laughs> sorry sorry and he comes home one night while his family is while his girls are still awake and his second you know his youngest girl is kind of playing with her dolls on the floor and she looks at him come in the front door and then she looks at her mom and she says is that the one we call daddy? <laughs> and he heard that. Ouch. Wow. Talk about like a brutal reckoning that you have been an absentee father, you know? And it was like, it was so painful, but it was also kind of like the moment where he was like, I'm lost. I have dedicated myself to the wrong things. I am lost. And then he that's when he started to change, you know, like freedom comes after that. Hmm. All right, Angelina, I'll turn that over to you then. Last couple of minutes here. Uh, what are you, what are you going to be looking for? Well, now for? that Tim what has revealed you... a painful childhood story of mine, um, I'm going <laughs> to, <laughs> <laughs> just joking. I never played with dolls. Anyway, <laughs> my little Shakespeare uh, action figure was okay. Anyway, oh, yeah, anyway, yeah. anyway. You had the Shakespeare dolls. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it actually, I had a Wonder Woman doll and that is a true story. And that was the best thing ever. Okay. Anyway. Uh, (laughs) So this whole, how do you get yourself out of this mess? Um, Almost always the answer is you can't. 
something, something miraculous has to happen, right? Something outside of yourself. And so that's something that we can look for. Also that this scene ends with the plan to put Malvolio in a dark room. So that's going to be, that's a symbolic death, right? He's being imprisoned. So all of the implications yeah, of yeah. everything we've talking about, about where a loss of self-knowledge leads you to death, to imprisonment, to enslavement, all of the images that scripture uses for, for sin, darkness. So we, we're going to have to look for the reverse of all of those things because now he's in isolation uh, because of this. Now, I think it's interesting. They're going to put him in this dark room, but uh, Olivia gives a speech in which she says, um, a murderous guilt shows not itself more soon than love that would seem hid. Love's night is noon. So what she's saying here is love cannot be hidden. Love is the one thing that cannot be hidden because the darkness of night, the darkness of love is light. That's what she says um, in that line. Love's night is noon. So, I'm curious where that's going to go. Is this a topsy-turvy, too much in love with love idea that she's going to be correcting on it? Or is love the light that's going to take everybody out of the dark and write them all? And maybe it's love, but not the kind of love they think it's going to be. Hmm. Maybe I'm just reading way too much into that one line and I got super excited or nothing. That's always a possibility. I, maybe I, not. Doubt, I doubt that's true. Well, okay. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's call it a day. Um, we could talk about because David's got to go birthday party somewhere. No, actually, David, what are you gonna we do? Have, we have another show in 15 minutes. Um, what am ah. I gonna do? Oh I, man, I was having visions of Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> um, it's a we, weird cycle in life, right? You think you grow out of these Chuck E. Cheese birthdays, and then you're a parent and you're right back in it. Yeah, exactly. They're a little different when you can't go on the rides anymore, though. Um, although maybe, <laughs> and also the one paying for all the games. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, right, right. It's a lot of quarters, man. Um, <laughs> that cotton candy means something different when it costs you when it actually costs seventeen dollars and quarters. Uh, That's exactly that right. Um, Fifty dollars later, my uh, kid's got a two-dollar stuffed animal. <laughs> but memories to last two days. Um, <laughs> You're such a cynic in your old age now, David. <laughs> I know. I don't know what happened. I've been 31 for like 12 hours. Um, 14 hours. Um, what time of day was I born? I should ask my mom. Uh, so what are we doing? Um, I think we're going to put the kids to bed early and I'm going to make steak and we're going to watch a movie. <laughs> oh, that that sounds great. Um, something hey, like by the way. Birthday dinner. That's amazing. By the way, what? This is always a heard, segue to something scary. Go ahead. No, I heard that um, the next season of The Queen is coming out. The Crown, yes, <laughs> yep, this week. The Crown, the Crown, yeah. On Friday, yep, yep. I'm definitely going to watch that. I bet you are. It's such a great show. Maybe That's we should something do, we all three agree about. We should do, once we've all watched it, we should do a bonus pod for Patreon people with an episode just discussing the season. I'd love that. Yes, because I have a lot of thoughts about the crown. Like I have sat people down and talked two straight hours about all the themes and motifs. So yeah, let's rock this. All right. So we'll watch that. And sometime at the end of December, I assume we can all get through eight episodes by the end of December. I'm just going to say we're going to, we're going to have to, and then we'll do a new year's ish time bonus episode for people who are Patreon uh, patrons. Okay. So that's a promise that we made that we probably won't be able to keep. Um, what else should we do? Um, Anything else? Any final thoughts that either of you want to want to offer before we sign off for this week? 
This might be my favorite episode ever. I'm super happy now. So keep this up. Don't disappoint me next week, Tim. Expectations are very high now. Okay. Your, your hidden self has been revealed. Expectations are high. And Tim, just so you know, your copy of Howard's End for, for the January is on its way. If you haven't Wonderful. gotten it, well, actually it's here. It's going to the Seattle place. So it's on its way. It'll, it'll be there waiting for you. So everybody don't forget that we're going to do Howard's End in um, early January, when I guess in the new year. I want to do another episode after Shakespeare leading into Howard's End where we kind of review our year in reading. Um, oh, yeah. Like we fun. did last time, three yeah. favorite books. I, I better that. get cracking and read some books. You probably read more than anybody. Um, but it, that's not even the point. It's not about how many. It's just about what are the things that moved you. The well, most. then don't ask me how many. You know, I feel all this pressure. I'm going to be spending the ne- entire month. Of de- We're not even going to have Christmas here. I'm just going to be reading around the clock okay, and I, listening I, to audiobooks I, at the same time. I promise to not ask you more than once how many books you <laughs> No, this is what happened. Tim comes out with something like, I read 78 books. And then I'm like, I hate myself. What okay. is my life? Why okay. am I a loser? Tim, Tim, how, how many books have you read right now? This year, I, yes. honestly, I was just thinking that. Um, ten? Pro- no. Does that include? That include? Yeah. So including close reads. Oh. So that's like six, four, five. You did not read ten books. Stop trying to make me feel better. No, I think that's true because, I mean, a lot. Re- he read it read- seventeen times, but yeah, well, that's, that's pro- well, okay. <laughs> I've reread. A handful of books Both I count. have. Oh, I they do. Okay, then it's closer to it's closer to twenty. Then I've you're read... such a liar. I know you just try to make me. Feel no, better. it's absolutely no, true. I'll tell you, I've read tw- I've read twenty seven books as of today in two thousand seventeen. Are you kidding me? I've read more than both of you. Yeah. I well you done. Well, because I counted the other day because I knew this conversation was coming up, and I was like, "How many more weeks do I have to so really pad anybody, this thing?" Anybody who has not read some exorbitant Cindy Rollins like amount of books, be 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 okay with that because Tim and I have not read as much. In yeah. my defense, I just feel like Cindy spent so many years raising nine kids that now that they're gone, she's just like, "Look at all this time." <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, she's listening I, to this, going, "Y'all are crazy." I got no time. <laughs> I've, yeah, it's because you read all, use it all to read. Um, I uh, I have a lot of books that I read part of, um, but you know that the books that I actually finished is, is twenty seven right now. I'm sure it'll, I've got some, and that includes kids' books, by the way. I'm including kids' books in that. So, um, I can I, I t- yeah. This is gonna take a like a, a kind of a nasty turn, but <laughs> Charles Manson. Now died last year right yeah no and this year he just died like a few just, weeks ago okay. like a week okay. ago two weeks I, ago my dad told me about helter skelter the account of the <gasps> did you read that book i'm reading it now oh as i'm God, driving across the country read this book angelina okay talk to it me it is terrifyingly David, good cut all this out no I have leave so it many in questions tim i have so many questions you gotta call me later i have so okay. many questions Okay, right, well, Tim, I'm only like a third of the Tim, way through. Tim, save your helter skelter conversation for when I ask you for a couple books that you recommend to people. Yes, but I Tim's don't know fair. that I can recommend helter skelter. Oh, I have a lot of questions. Then. You remember when they made a movie out of that and it used to play on TBS all the time? I watched Ooh, no. that again, Ooh. and then I wanted to read the book. 
Well, we need to sign off the actual show. Yeah, let's go. Let's um, go. <laughs> thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thanks to everyone who supports us through Patreon. Thank you to Angelina and Tim, to both of you for being on the show, and thank you for the birthday wishes. And um, that's it. I've got to sign off real quick here because people need this studio. But for Angelina, for Tim, for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell here on the Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads. And we will talk at you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.